0: People will say, well, is it anxiety or is it a sensory issue? It might be helpful if I do my best because these things can be kind of woven together and we'll talk about that, but to sort of help you tell the difference as a parent. So there are definitely people, children, that have pretty strong sensory issues. So it means that they're just sensitive to sounds and tastes and even the way things feel on their skin. And then there are kids that are very rigid about the way things need to be. Now, the way it gets confusing is imagine that you're very sensitive to sounds or to touch or to taste. You're going to want to control your environment because... It feels overwhelming to you when you're getting bombarded with all this sensory stuff. Then, on the other hand, we've got kids that are just going to demand that things go a certain way, not because of sensory issues, but because they have an expectation in their head about the way something is supposed to look, the way something
1: is supposed to go, the way something is supposed to be. And so it can get confusing. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and other big feelings. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an
0: anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way, and I'll even tell you what to say. So Robin, I've been getting a lot of questions, a lot of people emailing me and even a few people on the Facebook group talking about when things need to be just so. That's the term that parents use a lot. So the clothes need to be just so, the ponytail needs to be just so. And questioning people saying like, is this perfectionism? Is this anxiety? Is my kid just sensitive? And I thought it might be a good idea to sort of dive into this topic a little bit because this struggle between sensory issues and being overly sensitive, having a really activated nervous system, as we say, and how that interplays, how that interacts with anxiety is a really tricky thing sometimes for
1: parents to ferret out. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about a ponytail needing to be in the right place. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about... Fabrics needing to feel a certain way. Yep. You're talking about food probably as well, how the food is prepared. So it's like a lot of ways that a child might hone in on one or many ways that they're like, I'm directing, this is how it has to be. Correct. So let me
0: see if I can give you a differentiation that you can make. Sensory issues, and sometimes it's called sensory processing disorder. This is not a... Psychiatric diagnosis. And it's interesting because as I look at the two fields that deal with it, there's this controversy about do we call it this or do we call it that? I'm not going to get caught up in the semantics of it. I'm just going to talk about what this thing looks like and then what we can do to help. So if you have sensory issues, it really means that your nervous system is just overreactive. Now, if we talk about anxiety, We also say that there is some indication that if you're really anxious, that your amygdala, that fight or flight system is really overreactive. So in both cases, we have some overreactivity that's going on. When you are a sensory kid, the thing that the parents will see is a lot of overwhelm. So there's a bouncy house at a birthday party and kids are bouncing, and there's a lot of noise, and there's a lot of input, even a lot of smells, going to a birthday party, going to a playground, even in a loud classroom, and those kids will get really overwhelmed. They usually have meltdowns. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of retreat. There's some big meltdowns and what look like temper tantrums, and these kids just can't handle what they're getting. It's just too much for them. And you just see them fall apart. If we think about our ability to handle sensory input, there is a wide range of that. As adults, if you think about it, there are some people that would love to go to a loud rock concert and just, that makes me sound old, a loud rock concert. You go to a loud concert and you're just into it. Like you love the noise. You love the feeling of the bass just like banging in your body. And then there are other people where that's just
1: going to be way too much. When I think of the kids I have known who have sensory processing disorder, mm-hmm. you can really tell that when they are in that state of overwhelm, something's happening to them. Yes, yes that's the overwhelm. I'd never thought about it this way, but the kids who I've been around who I think might be more in the anxiety camp, their overwhelm is often something that's a little subjective. Mhm. They may decide to assign an overwhelm on something but not on another even though technically it's kind of similar. Correct a helpful way to differentiate is with
0: a child who's very overwhelmed in terms of their sensory stuff. You're right. It just sort of happens to them. And it can be pretty consistent. We also know it shows up very early. So you're going to see this in infants. You're going to see this in toddlers. One of the terms that we use in my side of it, because this is an occupational therapy, OT really focuses on dealing with sensory reintegration and sensory process disorder. The term we use over in the psychotherapy anxiety world is behavioral inhibition, a behaviorally inhibited temperament. Hmm. And that means that you've got kids that get overwhelmed very easily. They're very sensitive. They're Again, they have that overactive amygdala. Their responses are big. These are kids that have a hard time warming up to things. We know that that is often a precursor, if we don't do anything about it, to developing an anxiety disorder, in particular, social anxiety. So we've got these semantic terms, but here's a difference. And let me give you an example to sort of ferret that out. So you've got a kid who's got sensory issues to loud noises. And they see a dog, and they're little, and the dog is barking a lot. And the sound of the dog, the barking of the dog overwhelms them. That's too much. Now you've got a kid who's anxious about dogs. And let's say that anxiety showed up when they were six or seven they begin to anticipate that all dogs are dangerous. So when they see a dog from a distance or even when they anticipate going somewhere where they know there's going to be a dog, they are already feeling anxious and wanting to avoid before they get any kind of sensory overwhelm. So anxiety is a lot about the anticipation of what could happen. And the sensory stuff is really the overwhelm that happens when you get bombarded by the sensory input that you can't handle. Now, here's where the overlap happens. If you are consistently overwhelmed by sensory stuff, it doesn't feel good, you don't feel like you can handle it or you can't handle it because your poor little nervous system is really having a hard time, then you might begin to anticipate that a situation is going to be difficult for you. So if you're a very sensory kid, birthday parties are not going to be a pleasant experience for you if it's loud, if there's a pinata, if there's a bouncy house. So when mom says, hey, we're going to go to a birthday party, right away, you may say, I'm not going. That's how the the sensory and the anxiety things sort of team up together.
1: Can I add a point to that, though? Mm -hmm. So you've got the anxious kid who's outside at a friend's house, anticipates the anxiety about a dog, and then you have a great Dane in the neighbor's yard barking from the fence. Mm -hmm. who's really upsetting the anxious kid, Mm -hmm. but then the other neighbor starts a lawnmower and a leaf blower and all these other noises, zilcho response. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the sensory kid would be affected. It's an equal opportunity sense of overwhelm. Correct. And again, these things get
0: so tangled up, but with anxiety, you're assigning some sort of meaning or some sort of fear to the dog barking on the other side of the fence. So you're exactly right. If a child is anxious about dogs, there's the dog barking, but the friend where you're playing, dad or mom is out with the leaf blower and not a big deal because that noise doesn't get assigned the meaning that the dog barking gets. When we're looking at kids that have sensory issues, it really is just this bombardment And there's not a lot of meaning assigned to it. It's just the actual sensory input. Where with anxiety, there's a story. The thing that's hard about this is that people in different professions will look at this through their lens and sometimes come to conclusions about one thing or another without recognizing how these things are different and how they interact.
1: Or how much they start being woven with each other. If you aren't looking at it from both sides, Mm -hmm. it's going to delay or disrupt the ability to help shift the responses for the child.
0: Right. Now, when we're looking at anxiety, if we're looking at it from that just-so perspective, parents will say, well, her ponytail has to be just-so, or the food has to be arranged on the plate just-so, or... People have to sit in the car just so. That's not a sensory issue. I'm not going to say it's OCD, but that becomes this perfectionistic thing of rigidity. So one of the ways that you can sort of differentiate if you're trying to figure this out is, does this start out as overwhelm? Does my child just get flooded, overwhelmed with this sensory stuff? Or am I seeing rigidity? And the meltdown happens when we're not following the rules, the rigid rules that have been put in place. That's one of the ways that you can ferret it out. If you've got a child who says, can you put my ponytail in? And you go, sure, you put the ponytail in. And then they say like, that's not how I want my ponytail. Or you didn't put my ponytail in right. Or you have to do it again. That's not sensory overwhelm. That's my ponytail doesn't feel or look exactly as I want it to feel or look. But if you have a child that you say, it's time to brush your hair, and you start brushing their snarly hair, and they completely fall apart, for some kids, it's brushing their teeth, washing their hair, and they just fall apart,
1: then we're looking more at a sensory issue. You mentioned uh, why my toddler cries in our episode about happiness and sadness. One of my favorite lists of like the weird things toddlers do is that this one man said, my daughter insists on having buttered toast where the butter is completely melted. However, she cannot see us butter her toast. The toast has to be magically buttered and she will not eat it if she sees us butter the toast. (laughs)
0: Life with a toddler. Okay. So that brings up the third category of toddlers are irrational. that funny thing with that guy where he would list all the reasons his toddler was crying. She asked for an apple and I gave her an apple and now she's crying. I don't, I don't want parents to be like, oh my God, my toddler has sensory issues. If there are things that your toddler doesn't like or doesn't want, and they want to have things just so like my son had this little blanket that he called Eep. He couldn't say sleep. So his blanket was named Eep. And he liked his blanket down at his feet under his covers when he was little. So he would get eep, and he would put eep down on his feet. Now, that wasn't a sensory issue. It also wasn't a rigidity issue. It was a little weird, kind of cute, actually, toddler issue. So you want to make sure that we don't pathologize normal, irrational toddler behavior. It's when it really, when it's repetitive or when it's really intense, you really want to look at the intensity of it. When kids get this overwhelm, this sensory overwhelm, it's really, really hard for them to recover. And so that's what you notice, like they really fall apart. And then you really have to help them, you have to get them out of the situation. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, what we do to help kids in that state. There's three categories of just so. There's sensory overwhelm, there's rigidity, Right, My food has to be on the plate in a certain way. It's not about the texture of the food. It's that I don't like the peas to touch the potatoes, or I don't like my sandwich cut in squares. It has to be cut in a triangle, which is also a regular thing. I don't like the way my hair looks. You didn't do it right. I'm only allowed to sit on this side of the car. You have to sit on that side of the car. There's that rigidity and then there's just the toddler irrational just so that I have to have my blanket at my feet instead of near my head. Those are the three things that we see. The just so thing with the toddler is totally normal. The intensity of the other two things is really what you want to pay attention to. We'll talk about those after the break.
1: Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. This
0: message is sponsored by
1: Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're
0: going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money and Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster.
1: So for parents who have younger kids who are listeners, too, there is this toddler irrational phase that's just normal for everyone. Mm -hmm. Talk about what's developmentally appropriate to ease out of that and when and when parents might want to pay attention to lingering behaviors that haven't dissipated. So the reason that toddlers
0: are irrational is because they have no emotional management skills. And so that's what we're teaching them. Because babies and toddlers are supposed to have big, strong emotional reactions in order to get parents' attention because they're dependent upon them for survival. We don't expect little babies and toddlers to have a ton of emotional regulation because it's just biologically not what they're supposed to do. But by the time they become able to talk a little bit and understand language, and so we can introduce a little bit of the cognitive stuff. Once they begin to understand degrees of things, once they begin to understand a little bit of cause and effect, you talk to a toddler and you say, so we can do this after you do this, then we can do that. As soon as you begin to see those more mature cognitive processes, then they're able to do a little bit more emotional management. And we start talking to them about how it's okay that this happened or it's okay that this happened. It's not going to be a linear progression. There's going to be all sorts of fits and starts and when they're tired and when they're hungry and all that kind of stuff. But developmentally, if you see it in your child very intensely at an early age, because this sensory stuff is there really early and it just doesn't wane. It just stays at that intensity. By the time they're like three, you really want to begin to say, okay, so maybe I need to get some help in addressing this sensory stuff. Maybe I just wanna get some information about this of, of how do I help my child with what they call the process of sensory integration. If you are seeing that intense sensory reaction, one of the things the research shows, and they've looked at this, is how does this sensory issue predict anxiety? Is there a link between sensory stuff moving into anxiety disorders And the research says yes. And one of the things they looked at is age six. That's one of the big studies looked at. So if by age six, you're really seeing this intense sensory stuff, the likelihood that by age six, that child is also going to have a diagnosable anxiety disorder is much higher. And they even looked at different types of anxiety disorders, which, you know me, I'm like diagnosis, whatever. But they're looking at generalized anxiety disorder, which just basically means that you worry about a lot of things. So they don't really know, like, is it that there's a connection between, I have this overly sensitive nervous system, I have this really difficult time dealing with sensory input, and that's kind of connected to how anxiety disorders develop. They're always looking at those kinds of things, but they do see a flow. They do see a connection. How could
1: they not, though? I know, right. I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? Because if you're a six-year-old and you have a history of going to all of your friends' fifths and sixth birthday parties, mm-hmm. and they became very upsetting events to you, yeah, what kid wouldn't develop a phobia of birthday parties? So I wouldn't say phobia of birthday parties
0: because what they saw was that it was a much more generalized worry. So generalized anxiety disorder isn't about specific things, but you're worrying about uncertainty if you don't know what's going to happen, if when you step into new situations, you're feeling as if you're walking into a situation with no skin, so to speak, right? You're just going to get assaulted. Then of course, you're going to begin to worry about uncertainty. You're going to want to control your environment. You're going to want to make sure that everything goes as you need it to go because the result is that you just have this horrible, overwhelming sensory experience. Mm -hmm. The likelihood of that moving in that direction is pretty high, about, you know, close to about 40%. This is also a really common thing with kids on the spectrum. Kids who are diagnosed with autism, very, very likely that they're going to have sensory issues as well. There's a very strong correlation between that, so we see that. And that's another reason why if you've got a a two-and-a-half-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, if you begin to see some of these really big strong and terribly painful to watch reactions then you might want to begin to just explore what do i need to do to help my child there is a process of maturation in the nervous system so if you've got a child where you've got some sensory issues many kids get better as they mature and then the question is do you get help to help them with this Do you let them figure it out on their own? By the time oftentimes kids are eight or nine, this can really sort of dissipate. And one of the things when we look at what helps with this, you know, occupational therapy, which a lot of people don't understand what OT is and occupational think like, oh, does that help you do your occupation? It's not about doing your job in terms of the grown up version of doing your job. Think of it more broadly. It's like, how do you do your job as a human being? How do you do things that will enrich your life? How do you engage in your life? That's what really OTs really help with. And the stuff that OTs do to help kids with this sensory stuff is really, really cool and really helpful. There's no medicine. There's no side effect. There's no downside. And if so, if you're concerned about this, if you've got a kid who's really gets sensory overload and you get them evaluated by an OT and they give you stuff that you can do, it can be really, really helpful. It can be really helpful. So a lot of times I'll say to parents, if you can take them to an OT and learn some things that you guys can do to help with this, that can be really helpful. And there's no dangerous side effect, as opposed to the lot of things that my field does. Where, <laughs> So it can be really helpful. You know, I know several OTs, and when they are seeing the anxiety component of it, They recognize that, and oftentimes I get referrals from OTs, or people will come to me saying, we were in OT, and there's this also this anxiety component, and so we need help with that too. When I'm talking about side effects and talking about negative side effects, I'm talking about the medication of young little children. The statistics are that we're medicating kids at younger and younger ages. If you've got a kid who's got some sensory issues or some anxiety issues, we know that therapy works. So
1: that's what I'm talking about when I say negative side effects. Do occupational therapists discover that with their effective treatments, that the nervous system has somewhat of a malleable response, just like the cognitive work that you do?
0: Yeah. So that's an interesting thing. And again, it's different fields looking at it in different ways. What some people will say, not everybody, but I've heard people say, OTs will say, if you've got sensory processing disorder, it never goes away. And so the goal is to rearrange the environment so that you don't have to be assaulted by the things that are particularly difficult for you. Now, if we're talking about anxiety, we would say something different, wouldn't we? We would say that the brain is malleable. We're creating new neural pathways. We're figuring out ways to handle the things. And we're talking about exposure. So one of the differences in the approach that people take, depending on whether they're coming at it from a strong sensory side or a strong anxiety side, is the sensory people will say, accommodate, accommodate, accommodate. The anxiety people will say, don't accommodate, don't accommodate, don't accommodate. Well, actually, they will say accommodate. You don't say accommodate. (laughs) The people who know about this, if we look at what the protocols are, yeah, don't accommodate. You're right. You're right. that sometimes can get a little tricky for me as I'm trying to help families manage this because say you have a child who will only eat three things. The sensory person might say, that's fine. And we have to make sure that they have a diet that doesn't overwhelm their tactile, their sensory thing. And from an anxiety perspective, we're going to want to introduce more and more things. And I think there's probably a balance between the two. This is the way I look at it. And this is what I've said. And you've heard me say this. If there are things that overwhelm you, and it doesn't really matter if you do these things, then who cares? Because there is a very wide range. We all have things that we prefer or don't prefer in terms of our sensory input. So if you don't like roller coasters, if you don't like going on those spinny rides, who cares if you do that? If you don't like spicy foods, if they're really hard for you to eat, who cares if you don't like spicy foods? But if you can only sit in a certain seat in the car, if you are only eating two foods, if you are incapable of wearing shoes, then we do have to begin to work on being able to manage more. And this is where sometimes it's tricky between the anxiety that's keeping you from experimenting and developing a tolerance of uncertainty? Or is it just that you have one of these really overactive nervous systems and it's never going to feel good to you and it's okay if you avoid it? And that's the tricky place where, as professionals, we sort of live.
1: I just want to take a moment to say, if you're a parent, you're dealing with this. This is really hard. And I am being empathic that you, the parent, has probably talked to a lot of people, and you're getting a lot of contradictory advice. Mm -hmm. You only want the best for your kid, and this has been very, very challenging to navigate. Yeah.
0: The contradictory advice you could get runs the gamut. So if you talk to somebody who's really knowledgeable about sensory issues, they could say, you know, make sure that your child doesn't ever blah, 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 right? So people are extreme on either side. If you talk to somebody who doesn't know anything about this, if you talk to a judgmental relative or a professional who knows what role they might be in who doesn't really know anything about this, they could say, oh, your child is just spoiled, or you're babying your child, you're coddling your child. And it's the same thing that happens with anxiety. It is not fair to throw kids into situations without an understanding and approach that offers skill building. And so being able to talk to somebody who really is going to give you a plan of how you address this and how you deal with this is going to be really helpful. But you're exactly right. You have probably gotten so many different opinions, so many judgments. I see it all the time in my field, too. You know, I talk a lot about how little people understand obsessive compulsive disorder and how schools and pediatricians and ill-informed therapists and judgmental relatives miss it, miss it, miss it. And the same thing happens here. It can just be really overwhelming and confusing.
1: Let's take a break. And when we get back, let's talk about flexibility and anxiety and when those kids are really in the anxiety camp and what to do. How are those New Year's resolutions going? we make laundry day easier for you but it will also be easier on the planet so help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past and if earth breeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams you don't even have to return it just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund no questions asked get started with earth breeze and save 40% go to earthbreezecom flusterclucks that's earthbreezecom flusterclucks for 40% off your subscription I am really
0: working on improving my diet by making sure that I get the best quality products, organic foods, and I really want to make sure that I'm not using harsh chemicals in my home. Thrive Market is my go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. The convenience of getting everything online and then quickly shipped to my doorstep, that is a huge time saver I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. I can use their filters to suit my lifestyle needs. So maybe you're looking for organic snacks for your kids, or maybe you're gluten-free. As a Thrive Market member, I save money on every single grocery order, You will too. On average, I save over 30% each time. They even have a deals page that changes daily, always has some of my favorite brands. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. So, Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash flusterclux for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash flusterclux. thrivemarket.com slash flusterclux. So we've talked a lot about the sensory stuff. And again, I'm not an OT, so that's not my area of expertise. If you're really listening to this and thinking, oh, gosh, I've got one of these kids that's just got such a sensitive nervous system, I absolutely recommend that you do some research about this and maybe even talk to an OT, get an evaluation. Let's talk about the area that I am very familiar with, and that's the rigidity part of it. And when you've got kids that want things just so, because we're seeing sort of that rigidity or that a little bit of OCD, a little bit of perfectionism, in this case, this is where we don't want to accommodate. This is where you don't want to, as a parent, you don't want to get sucked into doing something over and over and over again until it's perfect, until it's just so. Now, remember, with a sensory overload kid, If you are trying to put their hair in a ponytail and they are getting that overload, they're going to melt down and they're going to not want you to put the ponytail in five different times because they've had it. But the perfectionistic child says, you have to do it over and over and over again until it's just so. That's what you don't want to participate in.
1: So working backwards from that, I've thought about that dynamic so much since we've been doing the podcast. If you have a parent who, in a very loving way, like a little Mm overparenter, I can't wait to make your lunch this perfect way and put the little notes in. And someone's like putting so much energy into the parenting. They're modeling, ooh, I know how to make something just wonderful for you because I love you. But the child can take that energy and then start demanding it consistently to a point. I mean, it can come from another way, but I could see like, for example... (laughs) in our house. My husband is like the best apple slicer on the planet. And I remember saying to him like, you know what, please give them apple once in a while with the skin on too. Because A, I can't cut an apple the way you can. Mm -hmm. And B, I don't want them to demand that that's the only way they'll eat an apple. That's right. That's both literal, but an allegory as well. Correct. Correct. It's sort of like the crust,
0: right? Taking off the crust of the sandwich. You're exactly right. So we want to hit this from both sides. Right. So that's the prevention model. Yes. The prevention model is that you want to show flexibility. So here's another example of kids only wanting to eat pasta if it's a certain shape or from a certain box or from a certain box. That's not a sensory issue. They're not having a reaction to the tactile experience of eating pasta. They're having a reaction to the fact that they will only eat that shape or they will only have that box. Their sensory system is not getting overwhelmed by either the blue box or the purple box. You want to introduce as early as possible that there is going to be a variety of things that you're going to eat or a variety of ways that you're going to do things. There's all sorts of different ways that we can blank. And when you begin to see kids demanding that The bed is made in a certain way. The pillows are stacked in a certain way. Again, we're moving out of toddler, so it's not like putting your little blanket at your feet. The child is saying, this is the way it has to be. The way you prevent that is by modeling that things don't always have to be a certain way, by having flexibility. Even at the dinner table, being able to not have assigned seats that everybody sits in the same seat every night at dinner. It's not that you have to make your house, everything has to be flexible all the time, of course, but just make sure that you balance out the routine and ritual that helps your family run smoothly, right? Because we want to have a bedtime routine with the, it has to be a certain way. And if you are somebody who prides yourself on things looking perfectly, pay attention to that language, Pay attention to when you are making cookies with your kids. Pay attention to when you're frosting a cake with your kids. Pay attention to the language. Pay attention to coming in and correcting them when they do things in a messy way. So they put the frosting on the cupcake and you come behind them and say, oh, okay, well, you almost got it, but let me make it look more whatever. Pay attention to that. Let things be messy. Let things be a little out of order. Let things be
1: different rather than this is the way that things have to be. Well, if you're a parent who has that perfectionist sort of trait yourself, I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot from what you say is parents should all pause and consciously raise the value of flexibility Mm -hmm. and the value of resilience and the value of pivoting and put that very high up. Make it as powerful and and desirable as things looking great or things going great. Realize that those things are very important for your children and to prioritize that as much as possible over your own tendencies of wanting a perfect Christmas tree. Correct.
0: Yeah. To take the cupcake example. So the language of perfectionism and just so is, oh my gosh, isn't it amazing that all our cupcakes look exactly the same? Versus, oh my gosh, look at all the wonderful ways. We can look at everybody came up with their own way of doing cupcakes. This is what a wonderful variety
1: of cupcakes we have. Here's the sad truth Mm -hmm. since we started the podcast. Yeah. My Christmas decorations have taken a nosedive. Good for you. Good (laughs) for you. Because I'm like, I used to be one of those moms who was like, I'm going to make the perfect Christmas tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Now I have like boxes of ornaments that never make it out Mm -hmm. of the attic. Yeah. I can't remember who was telling me this. Somebody I know.
0: But they had two Christmas trees. And one Christmas tree was her perfect Christmas tree that she was going to do her way. And then she got a separate Christmas tree that their kids could do the way they wanted to. A ton of people do that. You know me and Christmas trees, but I'm not a big fan of that because you're still saying you guys over here, you guys can have your less than crazy kid Christmas tree, but this look at what I did. This is perfect, right? The perfectionism as a precursor to a whole lot of horrible, (laughs) not only disorders, but just making it difficult to get through life. I'm just going to go after that perfectionism all the time. Like, let your kids wear two different socks. Who cares? And just to go back, so say you've got a kid who's beginning to have these perfectionistic tendencies or is full-blown into these perfectionistic tendencies, and they say, you have to do my hair again. You didn't do it." You say ahead of time, there is a part of you that demands that your ponytail be exactly this way or that your plate of food look exactly this way. I am not going to play that game with your perfectionism. And it's going to make you angry, but I'm not going to work for Polly Perfect. They are going to get pissed off. They're going to throw the hairbrush. They're going to refuse to eat. And you've got to just consistently give that message that perfectionism is not the goal. That just so is not the goal.
1: You could add, because I don't want Polly Perfect to be the boss of you. That's right. I don't want Polly Perfect to be the boss of you. And you can even
0: say, you know what? I have a Polly Perfect too. And you may have noticed that my Christmas decorations have really taken a dive in recent years because I am not letting Polly Perfect, right? Yeah. I know that there are parents listening that, that are saying like, I take so much pride in the fact my house looks perfect at Christmas, or I take so much pride in the fact that my cupcakes look the same. I take so much pride in the fact that I'm able to make my kids look so wonderful. I get it, but have some variety there too. If you're going to take your holiday picture and you want everybody to wear the same shirt, et cetera, et cetera, that's fine. But make sure that it's not a pervasive climate in your home. Speaking of school pictures and making your kid look perfect, my philosophy about school pictures was that I wanted a snapshot on how my kids looked in that grade, not how I manufactured them to look in that grade or not like the perfectly curated fourth grade school picture. I wanted a real life photo. If you saw my kids' class photos, you'd be like, do these kids even have a mother? (laughs) My son wore the same t-shirt just by chance in every school photo for like five years in a row.
1: It's so funny. So my mom, she'd always be like, I have to do this because it's going to look like you don't even have a mother. (laughs) I had the mom who was a perfectionist about my hair. Mm. It has to be brushed. It has to be styled. You know, we were talking about it. I actually knew how to like blow out and hot roll my hair by the time I was 10. (laughs) It's like now I think about it like it's kind of funny. Yeah. I don't think I was the only 10 year old in my time who knew how to dippity do it. (laughs) Mom, I'm going to dippity do my hair. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I do want to say this, because if you haven't listened to the perfectionism episodes that we've done, they're real game changers. Think about like the Christmas trees or the decorating or whatever. If you're a mom and you have a design eye and the idea of like out of pleasure, I'm going to create Mm -hmm. this really beautiful thing. Like, I mean, that's kind of allowed where it gets into the territory of not being what you promote is in the process of you seeking your vision. Are you pushing your kids away? Are you silencing other voices? Are you using your perfectionism to inhibit the connection of your family in that experience? Mm -hmm. And the way I see it, if we're talking about houses,
0: the way I see it is perfectionism in that- my house is perfect, is really, really in contradiction to play. Because when kids play, they get messy. When kids play, they move things around. If you want to build a fort, if you want to do finger painting, if you want to bake. I mean, I've talked to parents, they don't let their kids bake because it'll make the kitchen too messy and they can't tolerate that. So perfectionism and play are really at odds with each other. And it's the same even if we look at activities, if we look at somebody being a soccer player or somebody learning how to ice skate or whatever. As soon as perfectionism comes in, the playfulness really gets squashed.
1: I want to ask you this question because we've talked a lot about the parent patterns here Mm -hmm. of the perfectionism and how it can set the stage for the daughter to say, well, my ponytail has to be in this place, Mm -hmm. but... I'm sure you have seen exceptions to this where the parent's not necessarily doing this in the obvious way, but a child still latches on to this. So imagine if you've got kids that are in a
0: culture where perfectionism is rewarded and it could be in terms of ponytails, it could be in terms of ice skating, it could be in terms of grades, it could be in terms of clothes. We have to really keep our eyes open for how our kids are being influenced in other aspects of their lives too, to be perfect, right? This is how I'm going to look. Social media is a place where perfectionism, even though it's curated, becomes the way you're supposed to be. And so we have to talk to our kids about that. We have to model it. And then we also have to make sure that we're talking to them about how perfectionism is a myth and having things just so gets in the way of having things free and playful and silly and wonderful and joyful. In my years of being a clinician, when kids come in, I think I may have talked about this before. I would always be like, oh my God, am I a terrible mother. Because these kids would come in and they had like these cute little outfits and everything was matching and their ponytails were right in the center of their head. And meanwhile, I've got a kid who wore the, his underwear on the outside of his pants for a period of time. Just in your defense, he was very young when he did this. He oh, yeah. was not in high school. <laughs> By the time he got into high school, like middle school was rough because the underwear was on the outside of the pants. And we, we felt like, no, 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 he was very young. Yeah, no, he was potty training. Yeah, it was really cute, actually. Yeah, I didn't care. But people would respond. I think I've said this. People would respond like, oh, my gosh. You know, I'd be like, well, who cares if he wants to wear his underwear on the outside of his pants? It really is something to just keep an eye on. Let me just end by saying, because I think, Robin, you're exactly right, that if you've got these kids that have these big overreactions or these big sensory reactions or these kids that are really rigid, it is exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. Talk about it. Put it right on the table. If you've got tendencies in your family, talk about it. Be open about it. Small adjustments matter. Keep at it. Keep at it.
1: So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming
0: episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye,
2: Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence